Father in heaven, we come as your people so thankful for moments to rejoice, to remember, to be renewed, to once again recognize your glory that is transcendent and how yet you are so intimate with us. The very God who knit us together in our mother's womb, who's given us gifts, who by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit illuminated our hearts and minds to believe the truth about the gospel. And at a certain age, whether we were young or older, you called us to yourself and we received you, Jesus, and rested in you alone for salvation, for you alone are the savior of the world. Father, we know that there will be a day when Christ returns. Some of us will be called home before that, but there will be a people, your people, and they will see you descending and every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, we must fix our eyes on our Savior. We must live in anticipation of that day, seeking to do all that you've called us to do for your glory's sake and by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a sweet day to be together for us, celebrating 30 years of what God started in a living room as a few people began to think and listen to the Lord and what he might be calling them to do to start a new church in this city. 30 years later, we are still leaning in to the holy word of God. 30 years later, we still see women and men and children of all ages, like what will happen this next week on the Florida trip, come to saving faith. 30 years later, we have people who are just as excited today as they were then about who God is and what he is doing. 30 years later, we come into a place that God has given us eager to extend his kingdom in the way in which we lift high the name of Christ, knowing that we are not an audience. We are worshipers. We are not a people who simply live intellectually inspired by this book, but a people who have had this living word transform our very lives daily as we turn to it. This morning, we're going to go back to the text we were in last week, where Peter, concluding his letter near the end, says, the end of all things is at hand. And then he specifically tells the church what they're to be doing in light of that reality of that promise. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter 4, I'll begin in chapter 4, verse 7, and read through verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's, let's say that last sentence together. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I want to review very quickly what I covered last week in case you were not here. I believe Peter, when he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these words, these words which would be read to local congregations that would likely be at home churches, I believe that Peter thought Christ would return soon. That this wasn't some metaphor. I believe he really thought that the return of Christ was imminent. The Word of God, the Word of God is God's Spirit carrying these people along to write what God wanted. And so God wanted Peter to write, the end of all things is at hand. He did not write those words in order to confuse us. He wrote those words in order to motivate us, that we are to live as a people with our eyes fixed on that promise that one day the king is going to return. This time, not as a, a babe, but as the king he is. And all who are in Christ will be with him for all eternity. That's our future. Peter then says, therefore, and he identifies a number of things that the people of God are to focus on. I summarized them last week by talking about prayer. You can see that in verse 7. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We need to be a praying body. When I ask you to pray for the Florida trip, that's really not a nice thing to consider doing if you have time. It's, I believe, there's power. And when people take the very names of high school students and leaders who've been on that trip and pray, I believe God will do great things. Prayer is powerful. And in light of the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, Peter says, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. So friends, we must be a praying body. Then in verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And last week, I showed you something that I'm sure many of you hadn't seen before because it was new to me. That when Peter says, above all, he's simply echoing what Christ said. Jesus told the disciples, the great commandment, the great commission, John 13, he said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is powerful. Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians 13 when he gives us the love chapter and ends with the faith, hope, and love. But above these is love. Love is everything. So Peter says, above all, keep loving one another. That's encouraging. Because keep means that we can do that. It means that it was happening. It means that he was encouraging the body to continue in what they were already doing. But then he gives us this incredible word. Keep loving one another earnestly. And I shared with you last week that the word earnestly, in some of your Bibles it might be translated fervently, is a word that means a muscle that's stretched. It's a muscle that's stretched to the point it can't stretch anymore. In horse racing, it's a picture of the horse in full gallop with its legs fully extended. They, they can't extend anymore. The horse can run no faster. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, love one another earnestly. 
It's agape love. It's a love that is a choice to love that which is unlovable. And guess what? You are unlovable at times, and so am I. There are times when we have to choose to love because the person that we are in relationship with is not acting kind. They're not making good decisions. Perhaps they have slandered you, and yet still they're a brother or sister in Christ. There is a love that requires this agape love, which is God's love for us. And it's a love that is stretched, stretched to the max. The only other time in the New Testament this word is used earnestly, fervently, is when Luke records Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He has asked Peter and the disciples to pray, and they fall asleep. And while they're sleeping, Jesus in agony, he said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. His body is literally dripping blood because he's under so much pressure. Luke tells us, the physician, he prayed earnestly. Jesus was stretched. He was stretched because of what he knew was coming. And then he truly was stretched. His body stretched out on the cross there earnestly. His body, Jesus died for us. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And then we see that we're called to serve. And we spoke about that last week. We're to serve in the strength that God supplies. This morning, I want to fo focus on two things we didn't spend much time on last week. And that is on a gift that you've been given and on hospitality. Look with me back at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I want to talk about hospitality for a minute. The first thing I want to say is that, that hospitality is profoundly misunderstood in the world today. And it's really misunderstood in the church. You might immediately have in mind someone that you would say, they have the gift of hospitality. And they might, but they might not. They might just really be good at entertaining, which isn't bad, but hospitality is not entertainment. Hospitality is, is not meant to show off what you already do well. Hospitality is not you comparing yourself to another and trying to make sure the event that you're planning is, is really perfect and, and beautiful. In fact, hospitality is never an event. Hospitality is not primarily centered on preparation, but preparedness. And hospitality isn't for a few who've got plenty of space and plenty of know-how and a pretty large cupboard and maybe even people that they can call to help. Every follower of Christ is called to practice hospitality. It's not primarily something that women are to do. In fact, in the qualifications for an elder, if you're thinking of nominating somebody for elder, you better make sure they're hospitable. Because if they're not, they're not qualified to be an elder. And I don't know many of our elders who actually are really good at throwing parties. They might be married to someone who is, but a party is not hospitality. Hospitality is a mindset. In fact, the word in Greek for hospitality here simply means love stranger. 
It means love the stranger, the visitor. It means to be open to those around you who are in need. And during this time, because there wasn't a Holiday Inn or a Motel 6 or a Marriott or whatever on every corner in these villages, believers would be walking through town needing a place to stay, sometimes under deep persecution. And what Peter was saying to the people is, be hospitable. Now, something you might miss, and I think this is really important. Verse 9 in your Bible, in our translation, it says, show hospitality. You may have a translation that says, be hospitable. The reason it's a little bit difficult to translate is because in that Greek sentence, there's no verb. So show hospitality to one another without grumbling is actually an adjective describing the verse before it. And the verse before it is all about love. It's an expression of how we would show that stretching love to those who are in need. It is an adjective describing that if you want to love one another, you don't simply do it by having a party, and there's nothing wrong with that, but by really listening, seeing, discovering what needs exist even in a stranger, and then for the sake of Christ and the glory of Christ, being willing to meet that need, not simply by checking a box, because hospitality isn't seasonal. Hospitality is not something where you look at your calendar and say, we've got a clear Friday night. That's where we're going to have hospitality. That's where we'll show hospitality. No, hospitality is a mindset where the people of God are prepared and willing at any moment to extend the love of Christ to those who need it. Hospitality is a concrete and personal expression of Christ's love intended to include strangers in a circle of care. It's not primarily about, I'm really good at hosting things. Come and enjoy what I'm good at. It is not something that's primarily born out of a gift and certainly not out of surplus. It's born out of sacrificial living. It is born out of a deep, deep love from a hospitable God who sent his son to us that we would then in these moments be prepared truly to give our life away for the sake of another, even a stranger. Hospitality is something that we can never do out of our own strength, but out of the strength God provides. Because true hospitality is going to be inconvenient. It's going to be something that's messy. You're not sure how long you're going to be required to love this person in the way you're loving them. And that's why it's so beautiful. Now, what role do you play in hospitality? One of the most hospitable statements that any church could have on their bulletin is on our bulletin every Sunday. But hospitality isn't just about a statement. It's not about reading books on hospitality. It is about being so prepared because of what your heart and mind has received that it's pressed so deeply in you that you are listening and looking for ways to serve. You see or hear of a need, you ask the Lord, what is it you want us to do? A lot of times people tend to think, 
that in the church, there are seasons of engagement. And depending on what age I am, I'm going to be engaged this way. And at some point, I'm going to have checked enough boxes where I don't have to do that anymore. That's never true. If you think it is, then you have bought into something that's unbiblical. You're living a life of, it's time to coast. If you can show me anywhere in scripture where it says, coast, coast to the finish line. I want to see it. I might want to do that, but it's not there. It's not there. I think that's one of the reasons why Peter was carried along by the Holy Spirit to say the end of all things is at hand because I've never met someone who knew the end was near for them. And they said, I've got eight months left. I'm just going to coast. It may be the reality because their body's given out, but I've never seen a believer say, I'm done. When we're living in light of the end, there is a focus that truly allows the many distractions to dissipate. In June, a year ago, Tim Tinsley told me, I'm dying. I don't think I will make it to the end of the summer. That conversation was heavy, heartfelt, lots of tears. We talked about the day in this sanctuary where we would have his service. But I remember and will never delete the text that we had, the last text we had, and it was not centered on coasting. It was centered on living fully to the very last minute for the glory of God. And that is what God calls us to. And in order to do that, God has done something so gracious to you, to me. God has given us specific gifts to be used by him through us for his glory. Look with me. Go back to verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Stewardship. I love it. As good stewards of God's very grace. Friends, grace is always the currency of stewardship. Grace, grace, grace. Grace is the currency of stewardship where we realize nothing I have is my own, not even me. By God's grace, he has saved me. By God's grace, he has given me gifts to use to extend grace to others. By God's grace and for his glory, he has enabled me to be faithful to him that I might tell others the good news of Christ. If you are in Christ, that means that you have at least one gift. The word says so. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it. What that means is if today you would say, I am a Christian, I have rested and received in Jesus alone for my salvation. That means you have a gift. You might not know what it is. You might have an idea, but that gift is to be used by you for his glory. I want you for a minute to be self-focused. This isn't selfish. In fact, if you don't do this, that is selfish. 
I want you to think about what it means to be a beloved daughter or a beloved son of the living God saved by grace. The currency of grace running through you. If everyone thought the way you do about using the gift he's given you for his glory in this church, what kind of church would we have? If everyone thought about preparing for worship the way you do, what kind of worship would we have? If everyone thought about listening to a sermon and then seeking to apply it the way you do, what kind of church would we have? If everyone thought about humility, forgiveness, truth, love, the way you do, what kind of church would we have? The reason that's important is we are a corporate body, but we're made up of individuals. That's why we have private confession and public. If everyone thought about the church the way you do, what kind of church would we have? My guess is that most of you went negative. And some of you probably started thinking about other people. That's not focusing on you. And that's actually not your spiritual gift. <laughs> Friends, if everyone thought about this expression of his church the way you do, what would our giving look like? The temptation is to go negative, but you shouldn't. You should actually think about who you are already in Christ. You should think about the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, who one day called you to be his very own. The God who has said, I've given you gifts to use for my glory. And more than that, I've given you the Holy Spirit, the helper, capital H, to empower you to do what I've called you to do. We should be thinking about the potential that we have in Christ. Because if we live out of who we already are in him, if we faithfully live out who we already are in him, then God will do things through this body that are beyond what we could even ask or imagine. And that's why our elders are calling our entire body to this season of renewal. How is it that God is calling you as an individual to renew the vows that you've once made? How is God calling you, and you may be very new to our church, to think about using your gifts here and through this body? What might God do? I don't know everything he might do, but I know one thing he will never encourage us to do, and that is coast. Or to think, you know what? I've done my time. It's someone else's. That's unbiblical. God is not calling us to coast. He is calling us to extend ourselves. It means to exert oneself to the utmost. And that's why the vow that we've taken as members, and you'll remember it, you heard them last week when we had new members joining, and more new members are joining in June. I promise to support this church and its worship and work to the best of my ability. We don't ask you to give us a part of your ability or a portion of your ability or a slot on your calendar when you might want to be available. We're calling you 
and we're calling me to live fully all in because of who we are in Christ. We're always going to fall short this side of heaven. And that's why grace is the currency of stewardship. Friends, everything that you've been given, every dollar is not yours. Every square footage that you live in is not yours. Nothing is yours, not even yourself. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism quoted and then sung is so powerful. I do not belong to myself, but I'm also not lost. I belong body and soul to the living God. And this living God died for me and will return for me so that I could bring him glory, not just one day in heaven, but now. Now, using the gifts that he's given me in his strength. And one way that's expressed is in hospitality. Hospitality is not primarily centered on a location like a home. It's centered on a mindset that loves God and loves others. The strength that God can give us to hold Christ out to others is everything we need. Hospitality is often seen centered at a meal. Someone's hungry and they need food. Someone needs shelter. They need a place to stay. Jesus was really homeless. He stayed at other people's places, but there was no more hospitable man to ever walk upon the earth. Constantly listening and looking at the needs of people and listening to his father's voice of how to meet that need all the way to the place where he prayed earnestly, being stretched. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. And it was the will of the father that his son would drink that cup. The table that we are about to come to is the Lord's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It is a table where Jesus calls his people to continue to come until he returns. Today, if you find yourself not in relationship with Jesus, you've not trusted him for salvation, you would not call yourself a Christian, then we would encourage you not to eat and drink of these elements lest you drink judgment on yourself, but to think deeply about what you've seen and heard today. We're so glad you're here. This table is not simply something we check a box on to go through the motions. It is a means of grace, truly feeding us, sustaining us, giving us hope until the day that Christ returns. This table is for you who are in Christ. It's God's hospitality shown time and time again for the people that he loves perfectly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to this table, even anticipating the joy of taking it together, we are so grateful 
for all that you've given us in Jesus. We're grateful that Jesus had this meal and that he shared it and that the apostles followed through in obedience to continue this practice. And that 30 years later, even in this church, we continue to do the same in particular seasons and in particular moments where we have the joy of coming together as the body of Christ. Father, as we partake, feed us. Show us once again your transcendence, and as we feed, your intimacy, the reality of God, the Holy Spirit living in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.